So someone came in f- to, uh, to meet with me this morning who has been practicing for a while and is familiar this is certainly with a lot of the techniques of mindfulness. And he said to me, so really, what are we trying to do here? <laughs> so I said, what we're trying to do here is soothe the mind. We're trying to calm down. We're trying to settle the mind so that it gets steady enough and balanced enough. And at the same time, we're trying to keep it awake enough and discerning enough so that when it looks around in its life, it's going to be startled by what it sees and startled by the awareness of all these human beings just suffering so much because they're trying so hard to stay comfortable, mostly ineptly, running around as hard as they can in a, in a basically not-win situation, hanging on a vine off a cliff, precariously, all of us. And if we see that, and we realize how hard everyone is trying to feel good, and how inept and mostly not well it works out, we feel heartbroken. And we're stunned by the amount of suffering that's just inherent in being alive, just a normal life where we lose people and we lose our youth and our vitality and our hopes and our dreams. We're losing all the time. And we look at it and really we feel stunned into really the desire to console. The the desire for compassionate response is inherent when we really get it about suffering. He said, that's it? I said, I said, that's really it. That's it. You know, that's it. If I would have talked further, I would have said, what's really also it is that it's so overwhelming, the awareness of suffering. Everybody, just as part of trying to stay just up with our lives, that we also are hoping in that clear-minded, clear vision state to be able to look around and have an awareness of how amazing life is. Not my life or your life or life itself. Suppose we could be in an astronaut's eye view. I remember looking on an astronaut's view of Earthrise from the moon. If we could be somewhere up high enough so we see here's this beautiful planet and here's all these people on it and all of them trying so hard and struggling and with different amounts of pain but everybody suffering. And also the beauty of it all how stunning it is that we keep on living generation after generation and we want to live more. I just, as I said that, I remembered the opening to uh, uh, Woody Allen's, what's the, what was the movie? Annie Hall, the beginning of Annie Hall where you hear voiceover and he's saying, you know the story about the two old women in rocking chairs on the porch of a Catskills Hotel and One of them says, it's a terrible hotel here. The the meals are really not good. And the other one says, yes, and such small portions. (laughs) That's what we have. That's what we have. We are trying to be able to say it's that way for everybody. And it's also amazing. 
when you walk out of here on any given night, you may have been involved in the you know a replay of the worst moments of your life or the biggest sadnesses that are real in your life. You go out last night after all the clouds and see the big moon. It was the most amazing big moon. And you see Venus and you see Mars and they're in the right place at the right time and someone could have told you that they were going to be there. And there they are where they're supposed to be at the right time. And there's something that's just thrilling about that. It lifts up the mind. At one point years ago I said, Everybody needs to have enough surprise, enough amazement in their life to want to go on with it. I was suggesting that everybody as a research project should get on a muni bus or an airplane and sit down and say to the person next to them, so, how are you managing to keep your heart afloat these days? (laughs) And when I said that, people said, you know, if I did that on a muni bus, people would get up and change their seat because, I mean, really, I mean... But really, everybody who's made it thus far has been buoyed up enough in their life, carried enough, tended to enough. Most people want more portions and larger ones and another chance. And that's so touching. It's so painful, and we want more. And what we're really trying to do, what I am trying to do, is to cultivate that awareness of waking up more of the time, I'd like it to be there because when it's there, I really feel moved to console and to be compassionate and to do the right thing and to ease the pain. When you think about the Bodhisattva uh, dedication to take care of all beings forever and ever, many lifetimes, I don't know about that. But when I think about when I feel in a place where I am expansively caring for everybody around me, I feel buoyed up. It's good for me. It picks me up. I don't have an exalted view of, oh, I'm a bodhisattva. I have the great liberating feeling of not being self-preoccupied. It's fantastic to get out of yourself. I can either fall into myself and be ruminating all the time about this one and that one, my story, this story, that story. I have a feeling we have, the you know, in a sports bar, they have different kinds of huge televisions that mostly... They have those kinds with the uh, uh, remote that you can click something and you can be seeing the Army-Navy game while you're seeing the Cal-USC game in a little box over here. You see that box and then you see this box. And I think that we have the possibility of seeing Sylvia's face as life in my little television in here and life. When you go out and you see Mars is in the right place and Venus is shining so bright and the moon is a little less than last night, you think it's remarkable. I'm in this universe. And you look up and you think, wow, it's limitless, this universe. It's amazing to be alive. And then you want more, and then you want more. And in the buoyed-up heart place, you can wish well to other people and be out of yourself. So that's what I said about we want to be, that's what we're doing here, really. So this person who had asked me what are we doing here, really I said that, about we want to be able to see the suffering in the world with such startling clarity that our own natural compassion is called forth out of us. And then we'd be free of it. And he said, so why are we doing these phrases? Couldn't I do it just on the breath? I said, yes, you could. You really could. 
And you could do it with eyes open in a life. You could do it walking around in life and looking at people and looking at life. The thing is that for myself and maybe most of us, when I'm in the middle of life, things are happening so fast and they're startling me one way or another, not in that amazing startle where I see clearly what it's all about, but in the just low-level startle of my to-do list that I found so-and-so, did I do this? Why did she say that to me? I wonder if my grandson is happy today. I wonder if he shouldn't have switched colleges and gone someplace else. I wonder this, I wonder that. All of the stuff that's going on, I forget to look around. One of the visions I like to think about a lot is uh, I grew up in New York, and I've lived out here for 50 years, 60 years. And uh, when I go back to New York, I normally stay in Upper Manhattan. I live with a friend of mine who lives on the Upper West Side, uh, two blocks from Broadway. And so often I leave her house and I walk down Broadway to get to wherever I'm going. And I think that Upper Broadway is a is a... A composite of the whole world. They have lots of, uh, a fair number of ethnicities there. And even if you're on this side or that side of Broadway, the uh, uh, level of affluence changes from one side of the street to the other. It's got stores and emporiums of all kinds going up and down and full of people. So if I leave my friend's house and I go down and I'm walking down Broadway, she's at 101st, maybe I have to go to 74th Street, and I'm walking along, and maybe I'm going to uh, I'm going to teach a class on 74th Street in Amsterdam. So I have to walk 25 blocks, walking along, and I'm thinking about. I wonder if I prepared right for this class. I wonder. I should first start with this story, and then I should tell that. But maybe I told that the last time I was here, and they think I only have one story. So what should I do? I should do this or that or the other thing. I'm walking along, mulling, mulling, mulling. In the meantime, I'm crossing streets all the time because the, the streets are very close together, the cross streets. So you, you stop. You, you know, Obviously, I don't walk into the traffic. I keep going, going, going. Walking, walking, not getting run over. And all of a sudden, something will happen. Maybe a truck will do a tremendous high honk, a loud honking on the... Or an ambulance will go by. Or... Uh, 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 a um, baby stroller that's a one for triplets. They have a very unusually high level of multiple births on the Upper West Side. <laughs> they do, actually. All kinds of people with strollers and multiple births there. <laughs> so somebody goes by with twins in a stroller. That's an amazing thing, twins. You think, whoa, look at that. So I'm going along there, self-preoccupied, and all of a sudden you see that, and you say, wow, look at that. And it's as if at that moment I wake up, I am all focused, and then I see Upper Broadway. And I see people of all kinds of colors and sizes and ages and abilities. They are people um, uh, walking, people walking briskly, people walking with canes, people being pushed in wheelchairs, people being pushed in baby buggies, um, adolescent boys going in and out on skateboards in between all of them. Got all levels of ability, all different colors and shapes and ages and sizes and everything else. And behind them, 
all these people going and coming. There's all these different stores selling all these different stuff, standing outside, different colors and shapes, and oh, look at that, I'll have to check this out when I come out. All this stuff, and you think this is amazing, life is amazing. Look how it comes. What is this, the multiplicity of things? This is fabulous, I could have, and you love everybody out there. May they be well, here are these old people sitting in a, being pushed, and somebody else is pushing them and taking good care of them. And you feel so touched by all of it. It's everybody's story. It's the whole world getting born and getting old and getting ready to have a life and getting ready to die. And it totally is a relief from my own small story of will I teach well when I get there. It's a totally... It's not only a relief, it's a cause of great jubilation. All of a sudden you feel great to be a person living in the world. And yet I forget the story about I'm old, I shouldn't be here in New York, it's too cold in the winter, old women shouldn't fly all over the place. You forget all that story because it's amazing. We really, I think, are looking are all the time hoping to be surprised by suffering so that we'll be touched and overwhelmed by it and amazed by a friend of mine my friend Mary, who's been a, a member of the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael since uh, she was 18, we, and she's my age as well. So we've been very close friends for a long time, uh, talking about how it is to be in a vowed relationship. Anyway, Mary taught me this prayer a long time ago. Her prayer is, may I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. I love that. Isn't that great? Because in that moment, ah, you forget all the stories that's keeping me here. I disappear, and the world wakes, comes to light for me. And you wish it so well. And then that's such a relief. Really, what I'm hoping is that if that happens enough, and the more it happens, the more I'll stay up. One of my teachers, Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shalomi, now of blessed memory, I know a number of my friends who are in this room knew him and had him as well as a teacher, liked to tell the story of his daughter. Gosh, this must be such an old story, because the story is about Shalvi when she was three years old, and now she's probably 50, I suppose, something like that. Uh, he said, Shalvi came into my bedroom one morning when she was about three years old, and she'd just woken up. And she said, Abba, Daddy, when you get up in the morning, you know how when you get up in the morning, you weren't, you were sleeping, and then you wake up? And he said, yeah. And she said, well, once you wake up, can you wake more up than up? <laughs> <laughs> and I love that, because I think what we are trying to do here is wake more up than up. We're walking around in a kind of a dream all the time. Overwhelmed. You know, I'm, I sometimes think to myself, I'm not at all sure that a human um, metabolism or neurology was built to really metabolize this amount of deluge of information so fast and so startling. Hard to think about thinking straight. You probably have noticed being here for a week that you had some difficult times, you had some moments where it was pleasant enough to cause you to stay. 
Maybe you had maybe you had enough pleasant moments. Well, you definitely had enough pleasant moments because here you are. I think you probably have noticed that for the most part, things got a little bit slower. You got soothed a little bit, even if you struggled with the meditation instructions. You didn't hear a telephone ring all week. That's a big deal. And if you really didn't do the electronics, you didn't do the electronics, that's good. When I come here to sit myself for my own personal practice, I sit several days and I discover all of a sudden, wow. And I may not ever, I, I didn't maybe feel unwell before, but just the mind, which is on high alert for the next stimulus. What an odd thing. I just remembered a story I haven't remembered in a long time. Let's see if I can tell it in a minute. I was traveling with my husband somewhere in uh, um, um, somewhere in South America. It doesn't matter where it was. Actually, it was in Chile. That's where we were at the time. We were in Chile, way in the south, uh, in the mountain areas. And we were staying uh, in a, quite a remote mountain lake. And for whatever reason... He'd gone out one afternoon to kayak out on the lake, and I was sitting on my deck and watching him. And um, it was a perfectly lovely afternoon. And then I thought, you know, it's a lovely day. I'm just going to go in, and uh, it's almost dinner time. I'll just take a nice hot bath. And I'm drawing the bath in the bathroom, and I think to myself, I better take the telephone off the hook so if it rings when I'm in the bathtub, I think to myself, hey, I'm in the south of Chile, in a remote mountain lake. No one knows where I am. We don't have a telephone here. But I'm so thinking, this is way before we had cell phones, and then it was always in our pocket, so I don't know what I would do now. But I realize at the moment, I must be heavily addicted to listening to the telephone. I've had that thought. I think we're all waiting for the phone or the this or the that. So just being here for a week, I also notice that when I'm here for a little bit and I just settle down a little bit, my mind is less startled by the stuff in my life. If I think to myself, ah, oh, I wonder if my grandson is happy because he wasn't about this or that, I wonder this or that, or I wonder this or that, that I'm wondering about it, but I'm not worried about it. Or I'm wondering about it and I don't feel, oh, it has to be this way or that way. My mechanism for it has to be this way or it can't be that way just settles down. Everybody's neurology does that. So it's important that I tell you the story of um, the Enlightenment Night of the Buddha because I take it to be folklore because as you hear it, it'll be a magic story. But I think it's a really important story um, because of the... Well, I, if I, I shouldn't tell you the story, but I'm going to tell you the message. I should just tell you the message. I'll tell you the story. So here's, here is Siddhartha Gautama, who's left his also story, family, who has protected him from all knowledge of really of the vulnerability and the absolute destiny of all humans, which is of all sentient beings, of old age, sickness, and death. And suddenly he has his existential moment of awareness as a, 
as an adult. Actually, in the story, he's an adult who's married and has a child. And he realizes everybody who's born has, in fact, in front of them, there's no way out but forward. And we're going to all have to deal with old age, sickness, and death if you make it to the old age, because sometimes people didn't. And and it's sort of paradigmatic for all the other things that we will lose in our life, not only our own vigor and health, but the vigor and health of the people that we love and care about. So he has that moment of existential awareness, and he realized that's quite upsetting. And when he has that realization, he also has the visual, he sees a monk walking along, serene of visage. So he has the thought, there's a way to be in a body, in a life, awake, and know that really life is this precarious, this contingent, and still be at ease in it. So how do, how do we do that? How do you get to do that? Why are so many other beings not at ease? I'll have to figure that out. And presumably in the story he studies six years with one teacher, I think in six years with another teacher, he gets to have enormous abilities to keep his mind steady. And still he feels, I haven't quite figured out that answer to human suffering, though. So he goes off by himself. And in the story, on the night of his enlightenment, he sits down with a vow. I'm not getting up from this place until I understand it. And he begins to radiate out from himself with his tremendous uh, faculty of uh, focused attention that he's developed through all his practicing. It's radiating out from him loving kindness. So that's what we're all doing here this week. We're radiating out from us loving kindness. And it's said in this story, by the way, this story, I'm telling you it in all its intricacies because it's in all children's, Buddhist children's books. It's a coloring book story because you can imagine it's a great-looking story. Here's this little monk sitting, radiating out loving kindness. And here, as he's settling himself down in the middle of his uh, circling himself with loving kindness, here come on horseback in the visions the forces of Mara. Mara is a personification of the disturber of mind. Here come the forces of Mara galloping in with arrows and spears, like their armies attacking him. And he is serene, and he sits with all his, he's radiating out his loving kindness. And he says to Mara, who's leading the, this attack, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I think that's the best phrase ever. I am not afraid. I'm not afraid. I think what we want most of all is to feel safe, which is not afraid. I see your armies, Mara, and I'm not afraid. May I feel safe. May I feel safe when we surround ourselves with that energy of benevolence towards all beings on all realms, we're safe. We're not in life necessarily safe from things happening. This is a natural world. We could have an earthquake right now, and we could... But that uh, the possibility of retaining for oneself a benevolent heart, 
That actually, I think, is the permanent refuge that's most reliable, that we could have in any circumstance until we exit this world. Really, the uh, safety of a benevolent heart so that there are no enemies in the mind. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Even the moment in which we're dying, may I meet it as a friend. I see your armies, Mara, and I'm not afraid. You'll see in some of the Buddha images around, in the one in the back, he has his fingers of his uh, right hand down on the ground. And it's said in the commentary that uh, he put his hand on the ground to make a gesture of, I have a right to be here. I have, and I, and I like to interpret that as the Buddha was a human being, we're all human beings. We have a right to be here in this body, in this life, and say, I see these disruptive energies that's coming to disturb my mind. So he stops. These aggressive energies are are kept at bay. Meantime, here from over here come the kinds of erotic energies that would arouse lust and desire. And he also sees those. And he says, again, I, uh, I, here I am. I'm not getting up from here. And it says in the explanation of the, the rest of this night that um, all these forces, disruptive forces to confuse his mind, can't Get, can't, can't really approach him because he is beaming out, radiating over the entire world this strong field of loving kindness and uh, that their spears and arrows of uh, disruptive energies, when they meet his shield of benevolence, they turn into flowers and fall on the floor, cover the earth all around him. So it's a great coloring book picture. And I love to think about the idea that uh, one's own loving feelings radiating out disarm anybody who comes. That we become not vulnerable in the way that other people are. Sometimes tragic things happen to people. But mostly mostly people who meet the world... um, as if it's their friend, uh, are not frightened by it. I think what we're doing here, that another way of understanding uh, what we're doing here with our practice of really articulating these phrases over and over and over and over again, which is the technique. It's not metta practice. Metta practice is... uh, is, Having the intention to stop the stop um, stop the confusion, to dispel the confusion in the mind by calming it, steadying it, and waking it up so that the confusion is dispelled and we see clearly what's happening. We could, as this person asked me today, could I do this metta practice, calming my mind and waking it up just with breath? Yes, you could. And many people do. So I really think it's important to know that uh, this, what we're calling metta practice, because we're using these um, 
blessings of goodwill as focuses of the attention is it's a particular technique to calm the mind and wake it up and keep it alert so that it could, again, have that, whoa, look at that. It's a suffering world. All these people who did something to me that I thought were my enemies, they couldn't do any any other way. They're stuck as I am, being programmed with habits of the mind that caused them, whenever the the whenever the hurt happened, to act ineptly. It's amazing for me when I realize that I don't have to be angry at people; that I can be compassionate for them. They hurt themselves. They hurt me. Sometimes I think, well, here's something to say about mindfulness and metta, just so in case I confuse somebody by saying that mindfulness and metta are the same. Mindfulness is the practice of meeting each moment with balance and alertness so that we can know what it is, meet it with open curiosity and balance, and have enough space and energy in that to respond in a way that doesn't create suffering. That's what every moment of mindfulness is. It's really, I, I was thinking about it, I was explaining to somebody recently, and I said, you know, when you think about it, every moment of mindfulness is a moment of compassion. Because here's something happening, and I am going to, with balanced, alert awareness, be moved to make the response that's not going to make it worse. That's a really a compassionate response. If I, if I really had the kind of depth of wisdom that caused me to remember always that everybody is suffering, you think it's all about compassion. Because that's the only response. It's a compassionate response to myself. If something happens, here we go. Let's pretend that I'm Siddhartha Gautama. And, uh, no, no, no. Just to say about the heart moving this way and that way, then you are too. We are all. So in your mind, you're sitting here nicely all day long, Feel good, 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 good. And then here, marching in are the armies of Mara with uh, maybe uh, a thought to disrupt your mind and make you frightened. What about I might lose my job or uh, my partner's going to leave me? Or You know, I, know, I think we think about three things more or less when we're on our own, unless we're just sitting here uh, just enjoying the afternoon. We're thinking about our uh, our jobs and our relationship and our health. That's about, and I, th- I think that's it, more or less, because those are the three things you need. You need the job and the relationship and the health, to, you know, all of those things. And there's, you know, they're probably not something wrong with all of them, but maybe something could be fixed. But anyway, here comes the thing that, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well with this. And then the mind, instead of saying, may I be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. Here's a thought, knock, 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 you want to worry about the job? May I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, 
when I live with ease. You know, worrying not going to do any good. I'm just going to say my phrases here, and I'm going to do that because I can't, I can't go to I can't think about the job till Tuesday. So forget about it. I'm doing this. And in the meantime, the do the doing of it. No, somebody said, "Is that it? What is it? It is keeping the mind steady and alert, not steady and sleepy." but steady and alert and poised to act. Three things, steady and alert and poised to respond. Here we don't respond in any big way, like in, the, like in speech, in the world, you have to say something, you have to do something. Here we can't speak and there's not much to do. But there is the response of the, there's the response of the mind to here comes knock, 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 you want to worry about this? We can say, well, matter of fact, I haven't worried about that for a while, I'll worry about that. And it storms up the mind. It's a very compassionate act to yourself to say, not now. I'll just say these phrases again. Or some other phrases if you like them better. But the phrases are not magic. I can't say that enough times. The phrases are not magic. The phrases are what is keeping your attention. For some people, actually, their, their attention to breath is steadier and easier than the phrases. That's number one truth. That's fine. We're not doing it to have breath or to have phrases. We're doing it to steady the mind so that we'll see clearly, so we'll be ready to respond in a way that doesn't make things worse. When you think about it, that don't make things worse is, it sounds like a, like a frivolous thing to say, but if in fact our predicament here is hanging on the vine and the mouse is gnawing and the tiger is growling, you really don't want to make things worse. You know that in your life, in the way that we make things worse in the life, because it doesn't have to do with tigers, is we get frightened by this, and then we behave, we respond ineptly. I better run back to my room and text my colleague and see if I still have my job, or, and then yeah, I text. Oh no, I messed up my whole retreat because I texted. Oh, see, I'm never going to make it. I won't be good. It's much. It would have been a much more compassionate act to say, I'm just saying the phrases. I'm just saying the phrases. The phrases are not a magic policeman, but the phrases, in fact, will captivate your attention, and at some point, your body will settle down, and your mind will settle down, and it will look around and think, wow, everybody's trying as hard as they can to be happy. Me too. May I really feel at ease. And all the stories that we tell ourselves all the time, but I'm not good enough, I didn't do this right, I didn't make the right decision, they fall away because it becomes completely clear that you never made a wrong decision. You always did the best that you could, given the information that you had at the time. This is a really not only the ultimate compassion practice, it's the ultimate forgiveness practice. Everybody is always doing the only thing, not the best thing they can do, but really the only thing they can do. I had this phrase that I've been carrying around for 10 or 15 years now, at least, maybe more, in a, in a, in a class here at Spirit Rock. Uh, people were talking about uh, the awareness of, uh, uh, from Dharma understanding that when, when we say to each other, I'm fine, it doesn't mean there are no problems in my life. Everybody's life has problems. Say, you know, hello, how are you? I'm fine. It means I have my allotment of, of problems that everybody does, but I'm managing. That's what it means. 
So we were talking about we could meet people in doctor's offices or in supermarkets, and we could recognize them from class, and we could have a, like a magic handshake. We could have that certain fraternities or sororities have. We could have a magic phrase that say, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? And the other person, fine. And we would understand that means I'm making it with my problem, with my whatever my allotment of problems. And I was talking about that in class. I thought that was so clever. And somebody said, um, somebody named Gwen, that I feel always I want to make an attribution, said, uh, I never say I'm fine, Sylvia. When someone says, how are you, Gwen? She said, I say, I couldn't be better. Because I couldn't. (laughs) If I could, I would. No, that's really true for all of us. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to mess up the day and purposely wreck things for everybody. We don't, you know. Even that it looks, sometimes you might think those people are getting up in the morning and diabolical. Mostly not, I don't think. Mostly not. We are, when when I am crabby, it's because I couldn't be better. That's not pleasant to be crabby. When, we're not, when I'm not pleasant, it means I don't feel good. When I say hurtful things to people, it means I don't feel good. That's it. I just had another memory that I haven't remembered for a long time. When, in 1959, uh, when my husband had finished his training as a psychiatrist, he uh, uh, was required to be in the army for two years because they still had a compulsory draft at that time. And they had given him deferments until he finished all of his graduate trainings. And uh, uh, we went, to, since he was married, and he had uh, two children, or two children already. We, went, we, we spent two years in Fort Benning, Georgia. I was thinking... Wow, I'd forgotten this whole piece of my life. This was a very important thing for me to be in 1959 to 1961 in Fort Benning, Georgia, but uh, quite apart from everything else that was significantly starting to go on there. Uh, because he was a division psychiatrist, when you think about it, the absurdity of a division has 60,000 men in it, and he's one 27-year-old man. And he's the psychiatrist for this whole division. But every once in a while, there would be a person who was being court-martialed for something. And he got called to testify at the court-martial to say if the person was was, uh, sane sane enough, mentally well enough, to uh, be tried for a crime. And he... They soon saw that what his general response was is that anybody who does a crime is not mentally ill. Is, is mentally ill. Is mentally ill. Anybody who does a crime is mentally ill. That it's an illness to do a crime. So after that, he didn't get invited to testify anymore <laughs> at courts martial. But I was very proud of him, actually, that he did that, you know, that, and stood up for himself. Said, anybody who does a crime, especially, you know, anyway, leave it be, you got it. <laughs> Think about it, it's free from self-preoccupation. 
So I really think it's all about. Um, we could call. We could. Call, I, people say I'm going to a mindfulness retreat, but I'm now I'm going to go to a meta retreat. I like it better. I want to tell you that I've told my friends and my colleagues that when I die, when they thinking of something they want to put on my. I have to have a big tombstone to put this on it. But what I wanted to say, this is, in, a, in essence, this is what I want my mark in, in the Dharma world to be. That Sylvia said that metta is mindfulness, period. It's not a form of mindfulness, it is me- mindfulness. The instructions for mindfulness to pay attention with a curious mind and a, an openness to what's going on, poised to respond, Poised to respond means if the mind is really balanced, then it will respond to an ordinary situation with feelings of goodwill and loving kindness. It will respond to a doleful, difficult situation with feelings of compassion. It will respond quite naturally to wonderful situations by really excited, joyful appreciation. That sounds as meta as you can get. That's the whole of divine abodes. I don't think it's different. What's different when you come to a retreat is if you came to a, a, a mindful retreat, they would most likely be the encouragement to, to calm and soothe your mind by staying with the feelings of breathing, by anapanasati it's called, and it's breath meditation. It's wonderful, it's wonderful. It was my meditation practice for 10 years before I learned metta practice. Because before that, my teachers didn't know that. They learned it, and a year later they taught it to me. Uh, but they're not, they're not going in different places. They're both going the same way. They're going to the same place of wisdom, the same, the same understanding, the same insight about everyone is hanging from a cliff on a vine that's getting chewed and knows it in some kind of way and trying the best they can while they're here to have delight in this life. And we're easily pleased when the mind is clear about that's what you need to be happy, you need to be safe. Somebody was telling me, more than one person was telling me a story about the pleasure of watching the turkeys marching around. They're so improbable. <laughs> and if you get close up to them, they're extremely beautiful. They're, they're, each of their feathers is really amazing, with luminescent, irid, not luminous, fluorescent, Iridescent, iridescent is what they are. Iridescent green in their feathers, and they do the 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 men turkeys do out their tail, and then they waddle because they can't walk around like that. And you know they 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 do that. These three months is the three months of the years of the turkeys getting ready to make new turkeys, and so they stand around doing this. It picks up the pace in February and March, actually. <laughs> And then people stand outside for long periods of time watching them carry on out there, you know, because there's not much else happening. And what's so interesting about it, people are also telling me today about sitting on different benches and seeing those little animals come up out of the, out of the ground. I don't know whether they're moles or gophers or what they are, but they stick their little face out of a hole all of a sudden. And that sitting there, they have the feeling, oh, 
what did these poor gophers do in the rain? It was raining in there. Because if you really have a quiet enough mind, so all your stories aren't going. And you sit down, life is amazing. The gopher is amazing. The turkeys are amazing. They're beautiful. Look at them. Look at those things walking around. How amazing. And you have pleasure from that. It's a delight in turkeys and a delight in moles. You know, life does not have to be as hyped as it is. So we really like that story of Siddhartha Gautama. Here come the frightening because they're going to attack us. Here come the, 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 uh, the lust-producing thoughts because we'll be pulled off where we're going to go. We're really, what we can really do is say, I don't, I'm passing on that now. I'm fine. I'm safe. May I feel safe? You can do that with all of those, by the way, all those thoughts of, with the arrows and the lust producing, they're all the thoughts that you have all day long here. They are the arrows and the slings and the attacking Mara that arise to ruffle up. They don't arise to ruffle up your, you know, that sounds like they're actually malicious, those thoughts. They're just thoughts that we've come to believe and rank up in importance like they're, I really have to think about them now. And if you don't, if you think about them as movies playing in your mind that you don't have to go to, say, listen, I saw that one already. I saw that one three times yesterday. Sometimes we play a whole movie over and over and over and over again. He said, I said, he said, I said, and I'm going to say the next time, and then if I say that, he'll say this, and I'll say that. You spend a lot of time on imaginary conversations, imaginary Christmas dinners that you will cook or for whatever dinner is coming up, what I'm going to cook. And to be able to say, you know, this is enough this moment. A quiet mind is the best possible thing. I was sitting up on a retreat. Up means up in Santa Rosa. Up in uh, Santa Rosa a long time ago. Uh, Being a retreat and on a retreat at uh, the monastery there that we frequently teach at, um, and really still learning and getting a hang of what I was doing and why I was doing it. I sometimes, I I feel a little, uh, I don't know what I feel about this, but I hear teachers sometimes saying on the first night of a retreat, you should be clear about what your intention is as you start. And I so wasn't clear about what my intention was when I started. It was the 70s. People were doing odd things and going to lots of meditation <laughs> retreats. And it was very voguish and hip to go on a retreat. I wasn't yearning to go to a retreat. And, um, anyway, so I ended up doing retreats. And that's another whole story for another time. But uh, I ended up trying lots of different practices. And then I found... Uh, I I didn't find my husband went on a retreat. He came home and said, this is it, so you should do this, which he always did, and I always did that too because I'm pretty congenial. <laughs> but I didn't get interested in those other things. I was not interested, and then I went, and I went on a retreat for two weeks, and I got very interested in it, and um, I really was moved by 
the Dharma that I heard. I was much more moved by the Dharma than I heard than by any particular mind soothing that I had been able to do by that time. But anyway, I was sitting, maybe, I don't know, five, ten years of practice. I was sitting out at, at a retreat up in Santa Rosa, and it, um, it was almost lunchtime, and I was hungry. And uh, I went outside uh, the building for a few minutes. I thought, well, I'll just go outside for a few minutes before lunch. The bell is going to ring for lunch soon. And um, there was a stone bench right next to the building. And I sat down on the stone bench. It was pretty cold. It was probably January or February. So it was probably like today. It's a, it was misty, too. It was foggy. But it was okay. I sat down on the bench. I was aware the bench was cold. And I'm just looking, and right in front of me was a tree, uh, of a kind of a flowering bush, but it was February, so it hadn't flowered yet. And uh, I was sitting on the bench and just sitting, and I suppose I was feeling myself breathing and sitting and sitting and breathing and breathing. And uh, the bell rang for lunch, and I heard it. Ding. And I realized that, you know, often when I'm on retreat, the bell rings, I first of all think, finally, the bell rang. And especially if it's time around lunch, it goes ding, and I, and often I thought, ah. Oh. And uh, at different times, I'd, uh, for one reason or another, I'd hurry to stand up so I wouldn't have to be at the end of the line. Other times, that's a whole other story, I would decide to be on the end of the line just to see what my mind would do about it. You see, you get to play all kinds of games if you go on enough retreat. There's a, there are only so many permutations and combinations of amusing yourself, so you think of all kinds of things. <laughs> but I'm sitting on the bench, it rings, and I realized that I heard it, and I was hungry, and it was misty and foggy, a little bit cold, and the bench was certainly cold to sit on. But no feeling happened in me to leap up. You know, normally you hear the bell. I'm going. And I thought, that's odd. You know, and so here I thought, oh, I noticed that, just sitting. Then I noticed that I was feeling just really content. And, the, you know, that feeling of, ah, oh, I'm going to do it. I didn't have that. I felt really content. And I thought, I don't know, even then, if I articulated it all later, at some point I got up and I went and had lunch. But I thought, I really thought to myself, oh, I left out a part. I felt content, and I thought, this is far out. You know, I don't normally feel this content. I normally would jump up and do something. Maybe I'm enlightened. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe I maybe if I open my eyes and I look at that flowering bush, I was very much affected by Annie Dillard Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, in which she says one day I was coming home through the woods and all of a sudden, the cypress what kind of a cedar tree, all of a sudden the cedar tree was on fire, and I knew that the cedar tree wasn't on fire but that it must have been rosy, glowed, twilight, something. And I thought, you know, maybe when I open my eyes, that bush is going to be all shining, flowery, glow. I opened my eyes, the bush was exactly the same. 
as I saw it before. But I still thought to myself that that feeling of peaceful mind that doesn't need anything right now, doesn't need. You know, if I think about the fact that, um, I think about the line, I shall not want in the 23rd Psalm, it's really, I shall, I, I, the, the verb is, I, I really, I shall not need, crave. I need, like I really need. And my cup is brimming. Or my cup runneth over, depending on the translation. I have enough. There's not so many times in life where we say, I have enough. And the idea that we could have enough, this is enough. Enough is great. Because it's only when you don't have that sense of enough. When you have enough, you can be generous. You're appreciative because you don't need anything. To be extra. The turkeys are marvelous and that little animal looking out is marvelous. And not only is it marvelous, but you worry. I worried. This person worried. But what does that animal do when it rains? It must have rained down into its gully. That What did they do in their little tunnels? I don't know what they do, but there they were. It's really actually very simple when, when that person added to me this morning, what are we doing here really? That's what we're doing. We're coaxing our minds to settle down. We're trying to soothe them by having just the right conditions and living in a community that takes care of each other. We're eating extremely wholesome food that's very lovingly prepared. We're sleeping enough. We're not getting news bulletins and phones ringing. And we'll have to quite soon go back into the world with that. But I hope we are actually having a, uh, to one degree or another, Many events, if not maxi events, of mind at peace is a possibility. The third noble truth is peace is possible. In this body, in this mind, in this story, in this world, we'll talk probably, well, not probably, positively more tomorrow about going out in this world. But what we go out in the world with among other things, is a heart that has that possibility, not only here, but everywhere. And it's the same heart, radiating kindness over the entire world. Is sometimes my best line from the Metta Sutta. And sometimes I think my best line is... Um, wishing in gladness and in safety. Because when you look at it, or as you have looked at it in the past, you notice that the very first 10 or 12 lines are reminders about uh, ethical behavior. And then the suggestion, as I read the sutta, is that if we live that way, ethically and carefully, we'll feel glad and we'll feel safe because we will have created a safety around ourselves. And the, and the gladness of knowing that. And said, wishing in gladness and in safety. 
may all beings be at ease, because that's what we wish when we're glad and safe. It's glad and safe. You let go of self-preoccupation. You look around and you say, may all beings be at ease. That's what we're doing here. And the last thing I want to say is that I was thinking today that, uh, I, don't, I, w- I was going to say I would add two words to it, but I'm just going to add them as a caveat. I wouldn't change the words. I just want to say that when we say, omitting none, it also, I'd like it also to say, including me, for all of us, omitting none including me. So thank you very much. And uh, you want to say, oops. So if, thank you, Sylvia, for a beautiful, beautiful talk. And from where she was talking about if this experience has been enough for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.